We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. I'm Jason Estopanol. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer in Kona, Hawaii. And on the other line is Dr. Michael Bird. It's a bit of an honor. So thank you for joining us from down under. Merry Christmas. Oh, and Merry Christmas and ha- happy Advent and aloha to you. That's the one. And Dr. all your listeners. <laughs> Dr. Bird is professor at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and the author and contributor of dozens of works, including the recently released, updated second edition of his Evangelical Theology, A Biblical and Systematic Theology, Zondervan Academic 2020. And just by the way, the good people of Zondervan are offering us a copy to one of our listeners to give away. Uh, So to be entered, just share your favorite quote or thought from this episode on your Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or, or whatever, and tag us. Okay, this book, Dr. Bird, I, I think I literally finished it in a few days, which is insane because it's it's enormous. Um, I think what I loved is just the the way you go about theology, for sure. And I I think you also love that in a humble sense, like that. There's something about that. So, anyways, a lot of these questions are rooted in that. So, the first one in the book, you said, "I have generally believed." that some theologians should be routinely slapped in the face with a soggy fish in order to try to smack some exegetical sense in them. You can only watch someone struggling to push a round peg into a square hole for so long before you finally snatch the peg from them and say, just give it, give it here. I'll do it for you. End quote. Having said that, it just seems insane to me to write a systematic theology so difficult, time-consuming, meticulous, and of course the fact that there's no small amount of other theologies out there. So I assume there must have been like a real zeal and a fire to write this. There must have been some some bleeding flesh wound, right, that that you wanted to hit. All that to say, and please be candid, what did what were you like? Oh man, we got, we got to write this. We got to get this out there to address this issue, this overestimation, this under, what, what was the thing? Well, it was like, you know, when I went through uh, seminary, there are a number of good uh, theology books available for students. I mean, some of the older people would, you know, were giving us like Burkhoff, which is an older Presbyterian one. Lada Erickson was a very good Baptist one, particularly in the eighties and nineties. You also had Wayne Grudem, which on the one hand is very good because it's very biblical, very, very focused on the biblical text, but it's uh, very light on things like um, hermeneutics and church history, that type of a thing. And yeah, there are one or two others floating around. But what I wanted, I thought, well, I'm 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 evangelical, you know, in the in the best sense of the word. Um, is there an evangelical theology out there? One that that will use the gospel as a kind of interpretive lens, one that will set out the gospel and and show how the gospel suffuses into all areas of doctrine, kind of like a a connecting thread. And I went looking around for one and I could not find one. And in fact, I found that in a lot of um, 
systematic theology books written by evangelicals, they they are never particularly very clear about what the gospel even is. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of implied or assumed. And I'm going, that's that's a major deficiency because this this really is a big deal. And it got to the point where it was no longer this, you know, imaginary book I was looking for. It suddenly become one I wanted to write. Mm. Okay. Write a systematic theology setting out the major doctrines of the Christian faith and doing it in, in such a way that the gospel would be the center boundary and integrating point for Christian theology. Because what makes evangelical theology evangelical is the evangel that is the gospel, the good news. So I set out to write a systematic theology that was systematically evangelical in the sense that it puts the gospel front and center and unites everything around it. I think it's so good. Like, honestly, I feel like I was a Christian for, I mean, I don't know, maybe 15 years. And I even went, went to, you know, I got a degree in theology, all this stuff, but I actually don't think I if you ask me what what the gospel was, I'd probably say something like, uh, "The gospels to share the gospel." That's probably what I thought, you know, like functionally mm -hmm. speaking. So, I do love you have a, that dedicated section. You're like, "What is the gospel?" and you hit the implications. So, a lot of that in this here. But so, what's different about this this uh, second edition that just came out in October from the the, the first edition uh, back from 2013? Well, there's a, there's a number of things. Like I thought the, the the first edition did quite well, got some really good reviews and feedback, and students loved it. But there were some things that could be better. There were some sections I think I thought needed to be trimmed and a little bit more concise. So I did something very rare. I actually cut down certain sections. Mm. And in addition, there were certain sections that need to be beefed up. Certainly, the section on the doctrine of humanity. You know, I had to beef up, so I've added a, a whole bunch of stuff on the, the image of God, particularly thinking about the image of God in light of disability, which is something I'm very keen on. So I mean, how do you think of the image of God in relation to disability? Also, the, one of the big uh, flash words at the moment is identity. You know, what is human identity? Most people tend to think of identity as a mixture of personality plus sexual desire. I'm saying, well, that's that's not how we root our identity. We root our identity in something else, our union with Christ, or in other words, our baptism. Hmm. Uh, the section on pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that's been beefed up as well. And I'm trying to particularly interact with a lot more Pentecostal scholars for whom seem to flourish and burgeon in that area. The other thing I've done is uh, when I looked at the first edition, I noticed the footnotes were very white, male, and Calvinistic. Now, I don't mind my white male Calvinistic friends, but I wanted to cast the net a bit wider in terms of dialogue parties. So, you know, I go and read a bit of the work of, works of um, Jacob Arminius, uh, go weave some bit more of the Wesley theologians, maybe even a couple of Anabaptists thrown in for good measure. <laughs> I've got a lot more um, female authors uh, I've sort of, you know, mentioned, quoted, interacted, and I think I think that's very important. We, we, we You know, theology is for all the church. It's not, it's... Theology books do not come in pink and blue. I mean, it's, it's for the whole church. Uh, the other thing is I've done is I've added a lot more voices from the global church. I mean, the evangelical movement is a global movement. In fact, the center of evangelical Christianity is, is, is moving from the global uh, north to the global south, to places like Asia, South America, uh, Africa, uh, and the like. So I, want, I wanted to add a lot more uh, voices and authors I was interacting with 
from the, the, the wider majority world. And that was really, really good. I really learned a lot from our brothers and sisters. Uh, for me, particularly the Asia Pacific, I guess, is my home region. I tend to know Asia a little bit better than what you, some American friends might know um, uh, South America. So yeah. it, was, it was really good being able to have a look at some of that stuff. What about, did you, did you see any typos? You're like, oh man, this typo, we gotta get this typo. Or like, were you like, I sound lame here. I'm gonna change my wording. <laughs> oh, both, both. Yeah, some people had sent me uh, typos that I had in, um, or a few errors of fact. Uh, one of the <laughs> one of one of the errors of fact there was a chap who I accused of being at, at Cambridge when he was really at Oxford, and he was he was quite mortified. Um, it's kind of it's kind of like you know messing up you know which Mississippi someone is from. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or which which or which of which of the Dakotas they're from or which that's of the like, Carolinas they're from. Totally. All right. Well, that, that's good. Well, if 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 any of us readers see any more uh, flaws, we'll send them your way and you could patch them up for the third edition. James, there was one there was one interesting thing about the first edition, and that is the doctrine of sin begins on page six six six. Okay, folks. But we haven't been able to keep that for the second edition. <laughs> The, fir the first edition should be called the devil's sin edition because <laughs> doctrine of sin starts on page 666 so james eglinton said of the book it's a quote systematics with a smile end quote man i loved that i loved how easy it reads you got some jokes along the way and i love how you you'd like define the terms as well not small not smug at all I hate smug and I love, love that smug wasn't coming through all that to say the, the way you wrote the book. I love it's for the rank and file saints as well, but I, but I could picture like picture like the capital R reformed grouchy, just grouchy capital R reform guys getting all uptight about it. Right? Like, Oh, you need to write in a better manner. So what resolve did you have when you decided to write the way you did? Well, for, for me, I tend to write the way I speak. So I, I don't put on a different kind of persona. Mm. And my personality is uh, I'm fairly laid back. Uh, I tend to have a fairly uh, comical disposition as my natural, um, my natural sort of standing or bearing, if you like. And so, you know, I, I try to write this as if I was talking to people and trying to explain some really, you know, complex, heady stuff like things like, you know, hyperstatic union um, or, you know, uh, superlapsarianism, you know, or some really, really heady stuff and, and doing it in such a way that the average person can understand it, uh, get what I'm saying, but also be equally informed as um, both, both entertained and inspired. I mean, it's, it's one thing to impart information to people, but a really good author doesn't just tell you the facts, they get you excited about them. Uh, that's the difference in my mind between when you read a good book and a great book. You know, I, I can I can give you the recipe for how to make some hummus, or I can do it in such a way as you are excited at the prospect mm. of making hummus. And yeah. it's the same with this book. You know, I, I can teach you about the doctrine of God and give you a whole bunch of facts about God, but I want you to be excited about who God is, your relationship with him, God's mission in the world and your place within it. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, there's few books that I read this year that 
were like kind of actual page turners and very rarely would a systematic theology be like a page turner. So I think that's why I was able to cruise through it. So in the book, you said, quote, the gospel is the glue between doctrine, experience, mission, and practice. I submit that an authentic evangelical theology should be a working out of the gospel in the various loci lo, loci of Christian theology, i.e. the topics in theology like the nature of God, the person and work of Christ, the church, last things, etc. And then be, and this is what I want to highlight here, and then be applied to the sphere of daily Christian life. And the offices of and the offices of Christian leaders. End quote. So I want to zoom in on that notion that theology should be quote applied to the sphere of daily Christian life. So that's huge because many will say, okay, so yeah, I agree with the mental nod and full factual adherence to the theological facts in your book. For example, like Jesus is the second person in Trinity, we're saved by grace, God's omnipresent, and so on. How then, though, for like a busy mom? whose life is made up of commuting and uh, a dad in a mundane job, yet both people want to be about the things of God. In, in what ways do any of these, these things, these doctrinal theological truths, once they know people know they're Christians, have to do with their here and now for these that's normal people? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. And we should always be eager to ask, what is the practical outcomes of, of any theology? And, the purpose of theology, on the one hand, yes, it is to know things about God, to, to know God better, to use the language of Ephesians. Yeah, we want to know God better. But I much prefer the way that Kevin Van Hootzer puts it. He says, the purpose of theology is that those who bear Christ's name learn to walk in Christ's way. So the, the real um, end point, the real goal for theology is you might call it Christification, being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that's going to be different for you, where you are, what you're doing, and what, what time of life uh, it is for you. Now, if, if you're you know, parenting you know, two or three uh, kids, uh, you have to discern within the precincts of your own conscience, how do you know God and live out a Christ-centered faith in your parenting? Uh, in, in your work. And, and this can sometimes simply be a matter of ethical decisions. It can be how you prioritize things. But I, I think above all, it means you're not operating with a view of God that's simply inherited by your culture, that's just not married to a, a particular pl uh, place in space and time, but it's actually rooted in who God is towards us in Christ, or is the gospel lays him out to be so when, when i when i when i'm leading my children at grace you know at, at the dinner table we're not we're not playing to a praying to a kind of cosmic santa who's just there to hear our present requests we're we, the way we pray with the way we say grace we're praying to the god uh who has come to us in christ who has given us his spirit and calls us his sons and daughters so it's not this sort of like cosmic version of, of morgan freeman or something like that. So I th there's small things like that, but they all add up to one big thing, which is living a gospel-centered life. You, you said, quote, theology then is not an uh, objective discipline, i.e. a detached study of an uh, object, like the physical sciences, nor is it a descriptive discipline like the social sciences. Theology is speaking about God 
while in the very presence of God, we are intimately engaged with the subject of our study, end quote. So that is really compelling to me. But in many of our lived experiences, when we concern ourselves with theology and the things of God, it usually is a mere mental exercise or trying to stifle sin, right? You know, I, I do wish there was more of a, a quote, quote, like spiritual experience when engaging with with these things so and that that quote kind of speaks to that might might you unpack that a little bit for us uh yeah i mean theology is not something you just nod your head at and say okay fine i'm gonna file that under r for a rivadurchi and maybe save it for later or or something like that uh by the way just so you know i, I know that a rivadurchi doesn't begin with the letter r that was <laughs> that that was the joke and people think is that guy stupid um, no, uh, as I was saying before, um, a, a lot of this is going to be a slow burn. Like, I mean, give, give you an example. Some students, I'll be going through some stuff and they'll say to me things like, what's this got to do with anything? Why do I need to know the difference between homoousios and homoousios? Mm. Okay. Why do I need to know about hypostatic union, which is the, you know, the union of divinity and flesh? I remember I had one student who was kind of like, you know, I'm a worship pastor in my church. This has nothing to do with what I do. Okay, so why am I doing the same student a few weeks later went on a missions trip where they visited where they visited a mosque and they spoke to the imam and then the, um, you know, the imam was there. He, he'd ask all the students a question, you know, a very prying question about your faith. And this one imam said to a student of mine, I mean, you say Jesus is God. We say Jesus is a prophet. If, if Jesus is God, how can you fit all of divinity into one person? How can you fit it into one person? the immensity, the transcendence of God. And the student looked at the imam and said, have you ever heard of hypostatic union? And uh, all of a sudden, all this theology uh, that he'd been taught and a little bit even complaining about mm. suddenly became relevant in all places in a missional context mm. because hypostatic union is how we understand the unity of Jesus's divine and human nature. So he's truly God truly human those two natures are not mixed not diluted not compromised but united in his one person so it may seem a little bit um scholarly or a little bit technical but it's something that you need so you can uh do some of the mission work like in, in contexts like that where the issue of the nature the divine nature of of christ in some places in the world really is a, a big deal how you articulate that yeah it's a fair it's a fair question that that they ask in the book, you said, quote, I've always tried to be uh, conscientious of the big picture and the big questions that go with it. Simply asking, so what can help the most myopic of textual hacks, end quote. Where have you seen like specifically in your own life where you, you there was a doctrine or a theological truth and you wrote, so what? And then in, in pressing down that road of so what, you found well because this glorious reality or whatever yeah that's that, that's that's a good question um it's probably it's, it's probably so many areas we could we could talk about on that one let's take something like um i know let's take the doctor of the church let's take the doctor of the church okay <laughs> um now there are there are different views say of baptism now some people want to be uh credo-baptist, so you're going to get baptized as an adult on a profession of faith, then you get paedo-baptists. 
uh, who baptized children. That, that debate's been going on for, you know, well, really since the second century, Tertullian was the first one to say, I don't, I don't, I don't like this baptizing baby stuff. <laughs> and, you know, people have been arguing about it ever since. What I try to do is say, look, if you root that, if you see baptism as an out, outworking of the gospel, wherever someone is baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where they are brought into the visible body of the church, you can recognize the Christianness of that baptism, even if you may disagree, perhaps, on its mode and how prepared the candidate is, okay? So th that's a good example how I, I, I would root the doctrine of, you know, what we think about baptism in a wider idea of what we think the church is and how we see God's purposes related to the church and how he calls and brings people into his family. So th that, that leads me to a, a far more, I think, accommodating or um, mutual alternatives when it comes to something like baptism. Uh, throughout the book, you make it clear by like gospel-centered assertions that like this, that's the center of theology is the gospel. I mean, that is, that's your song that that's, you're singing that you're getting that tattooed on your cheek. Um, and you also say things like, quote, consequently, theology is the task for disciples of Jesus to begin excavating the manifold truth of the gospel and to start reflecting the spiritual realities that the gospel endeavors to cultivate in their own lives, end quote. So almost like the, the goal intrinsic with, you know, theology study is, is nothing less than the theology applied in our own lives. But if that's the case, then is it, uh, it, is it the gospel's benefits in our lives and not the historical gospel itself that should be the front and center for like the already Christian, does that make sense? You want me to rephrase it? I think I think I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean. Um, I would say that the content and the benefits go together. Okay, since the content of the gospel focuses on a number of things, like what God has done in Christ, you know, His life, His death, His resurrection, His exaltation, uh, the offer of salvation, including the forgiveness of sin or justification, being part of this this kingdom story and the, and the uh, response it calls for us, faith, repentance, and then a life of obedience and living under the Lordship of Christ. You could say that is the content, but the content does include many of the benefits. Uh, but after, after we've become that sort of uh, person who's accepted Christ in the gospel, uh, you then lead to the path of discipleship, which is following the Christ of the gospel. Uh, believing and worshipping the God of the gospel, who is a triune God, reordering your life, your values, your fears under the orbit of the lordship of Jesus Christ, because the gospel tells us Jesus is Lord. So I think there's a whole bunch of entailments that come out from the gospel that way. I mean, it, the, the assertion that Jesus is Lord, uh, which is part of the gospel, that itself creates a, a, a new constellation of allegiance for us in terms of, of, of who we follow. I mean, you, know, you, you, can, you can prioritize things. You know, you've, you've got your boss at work, you've got your government, um, you've got all sorts of things, but our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's our faith in God that really shapes us. So like we, we've on the show, I've used this analogy before. Um, it's like, I got married 
And, you know, on that day, like, you know, 10 years ago, we got the photos. We love it. We got the rings that are still attached from that day. And, you know, and we think, and we celebrate it once a year, but we don't just, we don't sit on the couch and look at one another and just be like, I loved our wedding day. The wedding day was so glorious. Instead, I mean, we do that, but instead we go, because of that wedding day, we then therefore go and have a family. We go barbecue at the beach. We sing songs at Christmas time. So the idea, you, you follow what I'm saying here is like, yeah. it's the gospel event, like the awesome, we don't minimize it all, but isn't it what it's unto? Oh, definitely, definitely. It's, it's the, uh, the unpacking. And, you know, uh, I mean, you're obviously married and you know that you spend the rest of your life getting to know your spouse mm. and they get to know you, um, the good, the bad and the ugly uh, and, and that type of a thing. And you, you, you learn to live that. And, and in your relationship with God, yeah, I mean, you particularly should go through different stages of life, you know, early career, maybe a family. And then you've got all sorts of things, you know, happen to, you know, parents can grow dependent and you, you, you have to discern. Uh, what it means to be a faithful Christian under those circumstances. And theology gives you the, the resources to do that. I mean, how do you think Christianly about the way you educate your kids, about what kind of church that you're going to take your family to? Mm. You know, what are you, what are you going to, what are you going to prioritize? And what would you flee from? What kind of churches do you say, no way I'm going there. Mm. Uh, or what churches can you say well okay a couple of things here i don't like but otherwise i think this is a good church i mean be able to make evaluative judgments you can do if you have a theologically formed mind and convictions right but i mean in speaking there's another part where you, in the book you talk about god's ultimate purposes where, where we're asking these important questions and just kind of staying hovered on this subject is like I, I wonder if the, I, I was listening to another interview, you said sort of like the gospel is the sun and every other doctrine sort of goes yeah. around it. And so yeah. I think of the, the doctrine of creation, I, I'm hot off the read of um, Craig Bartholomew's and Bruce Ashford's doctrine of creation, which I thought was really compelling. And this, this idea that at the, at the, at creation, you kind of see and throughout the word, we, we get like sort of the original goal, the, the telos, whatever that might be. I don't know if the telos was the gospel necessarily, right? And, and now we're getting back to like lapsarian stuff, but wasn't the, some people might say the goal was, uh, you know, friendship with God, image bearers, the glory of God covering the earth. He'll be, you know, we'll be his people and he'll be our God. So when we speak of the gospel as the center, that was the whole thing I was trying to figure out. Because for me personally, I know like the gospel, it's like I, we came to know nothing except for the gospel. But at the same time, there's this part in, you know, this in, in Genesis and then in the last few chapters of Revelation that that seems to be like what the gospel is unto. Okay. I know I've asked the same question, like four variations. I'm now done okay, with what? that, but... Okay, well, yeah, it's right. I mean, the, the gospel is one story about Jesus, God and Jesus, and, and to a degree even Israel, uh, but in part of a, a larger story of God's purposes in, uh, for all time. And I believe God's ultimate purpose is to unite himself with creation through the Logos, through his, through his word, through his son. So it's the marriage of, 
of God with his creation through through this 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 mediator who is God in himself and yet also becomes part of creation mm. by entering into to human existence and it's the bringing those two together that is the, the real the real if you like as you said the telos the end point uh, the gospel is part of the the big step in which that happens where Jesus um comes and he takes upon himself the the in many ways the vocation of adam the vocation of israel to be a priest and king of creation of you know of the world and inviting human creatures to share in that priestly and royal vocation which is what we're going to be doing for for eternity we're not going to spend eternity floating around heaven like casper the friendly ghost we're going to be in resurrection bodies looking and tending after the new creation mm-hmm. yeah and another and going off that you you had said the goal of our instruction in the scriptures And the purpose of our exploration of the Christian faith is to know God better so that we may grow in our knowledge of God and abound in insight and and intimacy, seeking a deeper knowledge of God through faith informed by learning, not purely cognitive. I just read that quote because it echoes what you said, that intimacy thing, which that is what like that is the core longing of my human heart. And I feel like most humans and I appreciate that you got that, you know, you touch on that. So I thought this was a really helpful and needed observation that you said, quote, I lament that most evangelical Christians have a theological method that amounts to a type of naive biblicism. That is the way that many evangelicals do theology is basically the same way that a butcher makes a sausage. In fact, I would label their method the, quote, theological sausage maker 3000, end quote. So you go on to like, put on notice Wayne Grudem's blockbuster theology book. You're you're not picking a fight, but you're highlighting some real realities. And then, and then you sort of unpack this notion of a, of a, the sausage maker. I think I've been guilty of that a lot of my life. And I think a lot of well-intentioned people are as well. Can you, can you give us a breakdown of the, uh, of that? Yeah. Let let me make a very provocative statement. And that is to say um, he or she who knows only the Bible does not really know the Bible. Okay, that that is that is to say, you can get a basic knowledge of of God, of faith, of Christianity from reading Scripture. Okay, but you're not going to have the wider tools you need unless unless you have some wider perspective or consideration. The first thing you need to do is understand something called hermeneutics. Okay, how how we do interpretation. Now that that's got two levels. One is the level like, how do you interpret a text? How do you interpret a psalm? How do you interpret, say, a gospel or an epistle or, you know, John's Apocalypse? So it's got like a very hands-on level. But on the other hand, you've got to look, how is meaning created? You know, when we say a text means something, what do we, you know, mean by that? Okay. And here's the other thing. Um, You know, meaning is partly about what God has intended in the text. It's what in the text. Uh, what people do with the text and that type of thing. So it's kind of like God, author, text, and reader. When those things are brought together, that's that's the fusion where where meaning really happens. And here we have to be conscious that sometimes we can bring things to the text that may potentially obscure our ability to understand it. So, for example, if if you've got a very hyper individualistic view. Um, you're going to end up with a very hyper-individualistic theology, okay? 
Um, well, let, let me give you a really funny example. Let me give you a funny example. A, in Thailand, a, a missionary uh, met a Buddhist monk and gave this Buddhist monk a copy of the four gospels and then wanted the, 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 the monk to read them and said, come back a week later and tell me what you, what you think of Jesus. And the monk had never done it before. And so a week later, the, the Buddhist comes, monk comes back and starts talking to this missionary. And the Buddhist monk says, this, this Jesus man, he is amazing. I mean, he is, he is even greater than the Buddha. And you know, so the, the missionary is thinking, man, this is going to be a really good one for the newsletter. And he, he asked the, the Buddhist monk, well, what makes you think that Jesus is, is so amazing? Well, he's born and then he dies. 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 And then they call him God. It took him only four incarnations to become God. It took the Buddha a thousand. <laughs> now, the Buddhist monk was reading these as four um, chronological life stories. He interpreted them in light of his understanding of reincarnation. Okay. Now, the same way people can do that, they bring their own um, presuppositions, their own biases. And unless you have the tools, you don't have the ability to see them. Okay. You don't have the ability to see them. And this is, this is the thing you have, and what theology can help you do. It doesn't tell you just what to believe, but it tells you how to believe. How do you create doctrine? Okay. Doctrine is not just looking at what scripture says. It's also looking in scripture in light of your culture. Mm. Now, does culture help you illuminate or does it sometimes obscure things? Okay. Because people will want to read things into the Bible. Now, let me tell you something. The right to bear arms and form militias may have been very, very good in the 18th century in America, the colonial period, but I don't think it's in the Bible. Okay. I'm not saying it's unwise, but I, you can't prove that from the Bible. Uh, the other thing you have to remember is, is you've got to remember what tradition is. Okay, Some people think of tradition as bad, as stale, a dogma, something that rigid, old, senile people believe. Okay, That's not tradition. Tradition is what the church has learned from reading scripture. Okay, Tradition Okay. Tradition is a tool for reading scripture. So we should read scripture in light of our tradition, both, you know, whether that's the Baptist tradition, the Presbyterian, the Reformed tradition, the wider Catholic tradition. We should learn from that. And these days we have such an anti-tradition view, um, particularly in the younger generation. Okay. And let, let, me, let me explain to you how my tra tradition is very important. Tradition is finding out which mushrooms are poisonous without having to learn the hard way. That's good. So when your grandmother says, you know, don't be eating that, you don't turn around to your grandma and say, okay, boomer, what do you know? Because <laughs> you start munching on those mushrooms, you're going to the emergency ward and your nana's going to say, I told you so. <laughs> okay. And your mom and dad's going to say, why didn't you listen to your grandmother? Well, she's an old person with her traditional views or something like that we all need everyone needs a a philip to run beside their chariot and to instruct them in the word and in the way of life in christ and it takes a lot of arrogance when someone says hey all i need is me and my esv you know look a few things in the cordons bring a few things together so if if, if, you, if you're not if your theology is not informed by the wisdom of the wider tradition if you're not conscious of thinking okay 
Am I believing this because it's scripture and it's faithful, or is my own culture giving me a bias towards this? Yeah. If you don't have that self-critical element, you're not going to come up with a good theology. In fact, all you're going to do is create is create God in the image of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And when that happens, you're on a schedule of idolatry. So yes, of course, scripture is our primary authority. You know, sola scriptura, as the Reformation said, said, but it's not the naked scripture. Yeah. We look at our teachers, present and past. We've got to think about things like culture, even to some degree. Look, look at look at the natural world. You know, what does what does physics tell us about God's creation? You know, what does science tell us about the wonder of God's majesty, or the way He laid the foundations in the heavens? So we, we, we've got to look um, beyond 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 that sort of mere get your Bible, stick it in the sausage grinder, turn the handle, and out comes doctrine. Yeah. Um, doctrines doctrines made just with proof texts are usually just a pretext what what people already want to believe. Yeah, yeah. So, good. So as I'm just closing now, a few final questions and kind of shifting subjects here. Another like helpful diagnosis you provide that I think many of us are guilty of, and that that's very helpful when you say, quote, I sometimes encounter another objection in that some students simply don't see what the point of the Trinity even is. They cannot perceive any possible application, relevance, or significance that the doctrine of the Trinity might have for them. So, and I know that you had, you know, you had referenced that, uh, you know, that, that guy who was a missionary and speaking with the Muslim or whatever, but is there a truth for those of the, for those Christians who are listening, like, oh yeah, I believe in the Trinity, you know, but like, what is one, what, one sort of, um, relevant truth about the Trinity in their Christian life that they could hang their hat on. They're like, if they know nothing, well, just remember this, assuming they already believe it. They're like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, there, there is nothing more terrifying for me than asking a new fresh to explain the Trinity. Uh, and it, it, they usually get about like one paragraph in and they've got more heresies than words to be, <laughs> to be perfectly on. Not always, not always, but a lot of the time. Uh, they've got some underlying heresies happening, but that's that's okay. I mean, it, it, every everyone, um, not everyone's saying like a full-on you know, Trinitarian theologian, but they've usually got some really cheesy analogies lined up, like well, God's kind of like you know ice and water and steam or something like that. Probably the bigger, more terrifying question is: I say to the students, "There's not just what is the Trinity." I say, if believing in the Trinity were a crime, what evidence would there be to convict? Oh, that is the harder one. And that's where students kind of scratch their head and say, well, I go to Trinity Baptist Church. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a start. And they're saying, how often is your Trinity mentioned? Because a lot of evangelical churches are what I believe Jesus monist. It's kind of, okay, there's the big cosmic father in the background. Then you've got, um, you know, the kind of um, Republican hippie Jesus. Uh, you've got the Holy Spirit, which is kind of like his vapor trail or his own little personal fog machine. And that's why we sing songs like, Jesus, you're terrific. For you, I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby, yeah, baby, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something something like that. And it's really terrifying that not only do they not know what the basic core of the Trinity is, they don't even know why it matters. The first thing why it matters is because God is Trinity, okay? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the God. Our God is the Trinitarian God. That's that is somewhat different, um, or very different from Islam, from Buddhism, from Hinduism. 
um, you know, we could say that it's intimated in various ways in the Old Testament, but the Jews do not share that Trinitarian account of God. So this, this is our distinctive, and it's a big one. We yeah. believe in a tri-personal God, and only a tri-personal God can do what is done in the gospel. Yeah. The gospel implies the Trinity because God the Father sends the Son in the power of the Spirit. He offers himself up through the Spirit. He dies for our sins. He rises for our justification. He's sent into heaven. And then he gives us the spirit to carry forth our own mission in the world. That can only be done by a Trinitarian God. You do not baptize in the name of a God, a creature, and an impersonal force. You baptize in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't baptize in the name of creator, redeemer, sustainer, because that, that would be modalism. That re reduces each of them to various functions. We, we baptize in the name of the person to our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Trinity, I think, is is very big. You should major on that. Uh, in the liturgical calendar, people celebrate Trinity Sunday, but I say unto you, every Sunday should be Trinity Sunday. Received. As we close out, <clears throat> can you speak to this sort of this final thought? Um, I just, I really, I really appreciated this. You said, if God's plan is to unite himself to creation through the Logos with the spirit, perhaps we could profit the suggestion that the center of salvation consists of communion with God, union with Christ, and life in the spirit. That encompasses not only the goal of salvation, but also its instruments and its chief blessing in light of God's plan for the cosmos. Man, great line. But yeah, could you could you just unpack that that final thing for us? Yeah, a lot of Christians have a, like a transactional view of salvation, where Christ pays for my sin, okay, and maybe maybe He gives me His righteousness, and thereafter He either leaves me to my own devices, or we kind of have like a supervisor supervisee relationship. What I'll say is maybe things are a little bit more in intimate than that, you know. Um, you know, what we what Christ establishes is we have you know, communion with God. We, we, we have a relationship with God. Okay, we're part of God's own family in the Son. We are united with Christ. You know, we, we are, we are, we are in, in a sense, one with him. We die and rise with him as symbolized by our baptism. And also what links us to Christ and what links us to God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, inhabits us, and that's the proof that we are sons and daughters of God. Which is which is both the instrument of salvation, but the goal for us to have, you know, to be to be close with God, okay, uh, to have that sort of intimate relationship with Him, and that intimacy is only going to be magnified and displayed on a cosmic theater uh, in in the in the hereafter and in and in the final consummation of all things. So th that, that's what I'm trying to get at when I was talking that way. Amen. We've been talking with Dr. Dr. Michael Bird, and the book is Evangelical Theology, a Biblical and Systematic Theology, Zondervan Academic 2020, the second edition. Um, like we said, we're giving a we're giving away a copy of that. So remember to your you know post your favorite quote or topic, um, and also follow Dr. Bird on Twitter. Your your commentary that comes out is gold. What what's your Twitter handle? I think it's at mbird12. Okay, we'll, we'll tag it. Um, but um, yeah, as we close out, can, can you share um, any, any projects that are coming out soon or that you're excited about? And also, um, and spoiler alert, but can you tell me how uh, your feedback on the latest Mandalorian episode? 
Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll go through those things. Um, a few things I've got in the pipeline. I've, I'm co-editing with Scott Harrower, the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers. Now, That'll is that the Oxford handbook? No, the Cambridge ah. one. The Cambridge one. Yes, got a, got a, Oxford and Cambridge are not the same place, believe it or not, even though I just call them Oxbridge most of the time anyway. I also got a book coming out called Seven Things About the Bible I Wish All Christians Knew. Nice. That's a little bit of like how to interpret the Bible, um, what's inspiration mean, um, how do you interpret the Bible in a Christocentric fashion. Uh, then a little bit further down the line, uh, probably uh, a book coming out in the next year or two on religious freedom in a secular age, hmm. looking at some you know, legal and cultural issues we've been facing in places like Australia, America, and the UK. And eventually there'll be a long-term project on Christology explaining how or in what sense did the church uh, understand Jesus to be divine, to be the son right. of God. So that's, that's what's in the pipeline for me. Nice. No, no Mandalorian thoughts, man. Oh, that's sorry. The, the Mandalorian. Yeah, I have, my entire family. I have, I have many, many Mandalorian thoughts. Uh, I think the series is getting great. The last two I, I've seen, uh, you have uh, uh, Ahsoka Tanu, who was in the, the one ago. And then this week we met Boba Fett for the yeah. first time since for me, like 1980. <laughs> um oh no actually we did we did see him in this in the in the prequels he was in the prequels as a little boy when, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so yeah that that was really good to see you so boba fett finally makes an imposo an appearance for a long time and yeah i mean it's really good i'm still waiting well, i'm expecting the next episode to luke skywalker or rock up uh that that would be the only thing that makes it even better or maybe even a ben kenobi or something uh so yeah there's some there's some good things some good things happening on that score. And I'm really enjoying the Mandalorian series. I love my Star Wars. Actually, I can tell you how much I love my Star Wars. If you look behind me, <laughs> you can see I've got a little Star Wars shelf on my bookshelf. I don't know. Maybe can you, can you oh, screen? Oh, yes. A, a fitting I, placement indeed. Maybe off the screen. I, I, have to keep it, I have to keep it at work because I'm not allowed to keep it at home. <laughs> uh, because my We're wife gonna... doesn't like my my boy toys um, <laughs> cluttering up her um, shelves. We're gonna we're gonna post a screenshot of the uh, the Star Wars bric-a-brac collection so the masses could uh, send in like, hey, I'll give you fifty bucks for that, bro. Anyways, thanks for joining us. Thanks for doing thanks for doing the work. And like I said, just even your approach at theology, I feel like is really, really helpful and down to earth. Merry Christmas to you. Well, Advent greetings to you, Jason, and to all your listeners, and it's been a pleasure. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to... Leave.